Thank you for tuning in to today's full episode of the Breaking Changes podcast. I'm your host and chief evangelist for Postman, Ken Lane. With Breaking Changes, we explore topics from the world of APIs, but through the lens of business and engineering leadership. Joining me today, we have Ben Mackley, Solutions Engineer Manager over at Zoom. Ben shared with me such a powerful view of how important it is for today's API lifecycle to be a business-led affair, shifting the long history of it being an IT thing. So let's dive in. Uh, start with the basics. Who are you and, and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Ben Mackley. I'm a Solutions Architect Manager at Zoom. And I connect enterprise software systems together as the solutions architect manager. So my team works with our platform. Uh, so we, uh, it's called Zoom Contact Center now, but we were essentially a chatbot and we connect with um, other CRMs and other uh, software providers out there. So our team is really involved in the nitty gritty with the APIs, making sure that the data is flowing properly, uh, that we're, we're secure when we're connecting systems together and that are, are, we're fulfilling the customer's business needs as well. Interesting. I like that. It's not just about the connections and, and what flows through the pipes. It's about actually meeting, meeting business needs of the human beings that are involved here, which is so important, but we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit. Uh, the, the integrations part of this is really interesting, but I want to understand, I want uh, everyone to understand a little bit more about you and, and your journey, where you've come from. So how, where do you, you know, where, where'd you get into all this? How'd you end up at Zoom? So it's been a winding journey. I think with, with most people's careers that end up as, as architects, it usually takes a winding path. Um, so I, I started a company out of school and I'm, I haven't been technically minded, um, at least when you know, I was going through school and at the beginning of my career, uh, I was more interested in, in starting things and doing a startup and, and solving education problems specifically. And I realized that technology was the way um, to create a, an impact um, across that would scale across many people. And because of that, I got into technology and, and the startup didn't end up working out, but that led down a path where I uh, was kind of searching for what to do. So I, I did product management. I was an engineer for a while. And then I finally found my home in uh, solutions engineering and solutions engineering is, is working on with the sales team selling B2B software. And as the solutions engineer, I was often doing the implementations and would be connecting the systems together. And, and that's kind of what led into solutions architecture um, where, where I'm at now. And I, I didn't realize this, but throughout my career, I've, I've worked on platforms. And generally within the industry, uh, there's more products than there are platforms. And I guess when I say platform, it's not like AWS or Google Cloud as far as hosting all of the services. Uh, it's more having a, a one-stop shop to do everything that a business user would need to do. So I worked at a process automation company that um, automated uh, processes within, within different companies, whether it was HR onboarding flows or... Um, more on the, the technical end. Um, and then I've also worked at a, a user monitoring company, Quantumetric. Uh, they did a combination of application performance monitoring, uh, as well as like user experience monitoring. That was a, a really interesting experience. And now, um, interestingly enough, at Solvi, it was the first time that I was working with a, a product team, but then we, we got bought by Zoom to be a part of 
uh, a broader platform with Zoom Contact Center. Love the journey. Um, definitely. I love the product management, engineering solutions, architecture and engineering kind of focus and journey, because I think, I, I don't think those, those career paths are getting as much of attention in this kind of Silicon Valley or, or technology narrative. You hear a lot about engineers and, and, and being an engineer, you're starting to hear more about product management. I wouldn't say it, it rivals as much, but I hear very little uh, advice, guidance, uh, showcasing that solutions engineering or solutions architecture is even a path that that uh, you can find and, and you can go to. So how, like, I mean, were you just, why why did you end up here? Because it, it spoke to you more or like, what are the reasons? So I, I feel like the sales teams in, in B2B, they, they need um, somebody that thinks both on a business side, but also understands the product. And I, I think I got into sales because my uh, working in the startup, I realized how important sales is to the, the lifeblood of a company. If you're not selling your product, if you're not interacting with your customers, then the product will die eventually. And then the business will die because there's no revenue coming in. And so for me, I've always wanted to solve the biggest problems that are out there. And I think within technology, there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. But the the flow of solving a problem always starts with a customer's pain. Um, not with a technical solution. Um, and so for me, I think I got into solutions engineering because I wanted to understand that life cycle of identifying problems and solving problems in the right way. And coming from the startup world where you wear many hats, I think solutions engineering is very, very similar. You have to understand the technology. You have to understand the customer. You have to be able to communicate with the customer. Um, and so information has to flow many different directions. And much like product management, um, solutions engineering is, is a connector role, uh, which I think it makes a lot of sense that solutions engineers and solutions architects work with APIs because APIs do the same, connecting different systems together and, and making sure that the technology can communicate um, in the same way. Well, I guess not the same way, but in a similar way that, that we communicate as humans. Yeah, it's it's about connections. I think it's that's an important uh uh, highlight emphasis that I, I, I get and I, I've thought about, but I think you, you put it pretty succinctly and the difference between solutions and product management. So I always say uh, the, the, the API space, the whole tech realm is very API producer centric. Um, and that's kind of def that narrative has been set kind of by API management providers, analysts like Gartner and Forrester and others and vendors talking about producing APIs. But for me, the best API producers are also API consumers because you get, you understand that pain. So from a product management and API producer perspective, I'm producing an API. Uh, I need alignment between business and my developers who's producing this, but I, I need to find that alignment with consumers. I need that feedback loop. And we iterate on this API and the velocity we're able to achieve and the value generated is is based upon my bridge as an API product manager. But what you're describing as as in the solutions realm is the same, but from a consumer side, like I'm guessing you see, you suffer a lot of pain 
um, and see a lot of things, problems that are introduced by the the APIs you're depending on uh, at Zoom for integrations and these CRM solutions and others. So what what sort of what war stories do you got for us as far as from that perspective? So I, I think that you described it really well that um, most API consumers, so I'm, I'm more of an API consumer as a solutions architect as opposed to an API creator. And I think most API creators don't often consume the own APIs that they're, they're developing. Um, so I've seen it both ways where um, when I was working at a process maker doing process automation, we had an, a phenomenal engineering team. Uh, they, they rebuilt the platform API first. And so they had the Swagger documentation for all the endpoints. Uh, you can actually run our entire system in a headless way uh, without our UI using our API endpoints. And they, they did a phenomenal job of creating a, a system, a, a platform that we could tap into without having um, to go to the, the engineering team for, for custom requests. And on, on the flip side, I, I felt um, we, we were getting there and we were improving as far as helping them on the consumer side uh, of giving them feedback of, of what would be um, you know, helpful. But I, I feel like that was almost underutilized. So the marketing aspect of the product that they built, like letting our customers know and then letting our salespeople know and, and how to sell our product to um, a technical audience, I feel like there, there was a, a huge gap there. Um, and, uh, I was, I was there at the beginning stages of the product, so I, I don't know where they've gone since, but hopefully they've, they've been able to make that shift to, to sell to those technical audiences and, um, educate the consumers in a way, uh, where they can understand the power of the product. Um, and then I've, I guess I've been on the opposite side where as a solutions architect, we've been craving, uh, we've, we've craved APIs on, on our own side. Um, that our engineering team could build those so that we could pass the work off to the customer instead of having to do custom work and, and building custom products for every, um, you know, every customer that, that we have. So I think it, it goes both ways and having a connection between the team that's building the product management team and the engineers that are creating the APIs and then the consumers that are going to be utilizing them, whether it's customers or you know, the, the internal users. Uh, at the company is is really important, but I I know that you've done a lot of work on this space. So what what have you found to be effective as far as like working with with customers? Has there been a process or a method that you've used to get the feedback when you're creating the APIs that have been helpful? Yeah, I mean, there's this is definitely one of those areas that um, I've seen different things work in different organizations and different ecosystems because of the culture or the industry or uh, where I think everyone collectively is in their API journey. So I, I like most areas of API lifecycle, I'm always uh, asterisk, you know, this is not one solution that's going to fix, you know, fix it for everybody, but uh, definitely feedback loops that are um, what I'm seeing right now shift is the the narrative around APIs for the last decade has been, here's a portal, here's reference documentation for everything. And here's, a, you can submit a ticket and here's a community forum. And we'll, we'll, we'll use the community forum and the tickets as, as this feedback loop. And 
what I've seen is is with with companies like uh, like Twitter is a good example of this. I, I'm not big on naming names, but Twitter I think is a is a really interesting example of they they get a lot of hostility in that forum because for some reason forums as 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 a feedback loop mechanism brings out the anger in some of us and we say things in ways that either are we're, we feel empowered to be kind of mean and, and ruthless or maybe we're just being not heard in the right way and what i'm seeing evolve right now is is developer experience and investment in developer experience change and diversify these feedback loops that you set up so the forum and the ticket um becomes blog post and social feedback around it or it becomes um it's it becomes channels that are very suited to the audience who who you're targeting because you've done your research you've done your due diligence on who are, who are we targeting with this so you're you're using tiktok appropriately because you're targeting the right audience or you're using hacker news because you know who you're going after is right there and so your feedback loops gets tailored to to that that channel that that target audience if it's internal it's done through teams and and the feedback loop if it's for microservices and apis for a certain domain within an enterprise so that developer experience that investment in that consciously constructing a feedback loop it really defines what how you gather that how you use it and the tone of it and back to the twitter example twitter has started for their um, Twitter Spaces API, they before they got to work on it, they actually fired up a Twitter Spaces to have a audio conversation, a town hall discussion about what should the Twitter Spaces API be or do, or should we even have one? And a whole bunch of people showed up, a bunch of developers in the developer community, and uh, Daniele, the uh, the product manager in charge, was was. Uh, looked at some of the names and goes, oh no, like these are some of the angry people from the forum. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And had a lot of anxiety about that. But then once turned on the audio, they were very cordial and very social. Like, and so he's trying to figure out, was it that they felt more empowered to be mean and, and cruel on the forum? Did he interpret it wrong? Is the audio more of an experience, the town hall format and an audio people are more, more, uh, friendlier he's still processing all of that but i guess my my point back answering to your question is developer experience is shifting how uh, investment developer experience is shifting how we construct these feedback loops and the maturity and visibility public private partner of our apis um very much dictates what channels we use and how we gather feedback and then how we listen and filter through based upon the volume of feedback we're getting yeah, I think that's that's an incredibly important uh, point. And when I was studying education, I did my master's in educational technology. And the the way that we learn is through feedback and whether that's uh, technologically. So like with APIs and uh, with programs that we write, the reason that we have error logs is because it's a feedback mechanism. And like what you were describing with Twitter, it, it makes a lot of sense because companies that are open to feedback uh, are the ones that are going to be improving and creating this not only great developer experience, but I think the great developer experience translates to a great user experience down the road and, and really a product that serves the customers as opposed to uh, a product that the customers have to adapt to 
to their own environment. So that's, I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting story, but also an interesting idea of developing these feedback loops um, according to the the product that it needs. Like might be Hacker News, might be, you know, a Twitter feed, might be just issues on GitHub that are are posted. Uh, but really, every product that is is open to feedback will will get that. Um, what's the, the what's the what's the cultural like? I see a lot of folks who who talk about feedback loops, talk about product management, talk about empathy. They're even like, how do we develop empathy for our customers? But really aren't honest about it, I would say, to the degree, because it's it's a little scary to to be to open yourself up to these the this criticism and the because you're probably getting feedback from some of the loudest folks. But like, so how do you how do you find the signal in this noise and what you're doing as far as I mean, you're hearing business goals, business, you need a business alignment, you got developers and, and teams, and you got customers, how do you find the signal in that noise? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many signals that that we're being attacked with, like both internally and then externally, uh, that it's it's hard to parse all of that out. And I think that's, that's really the role um, of what great product managers and great solution architects do is they're able to determine uh, the signal out of the noise. And so a few things that I, I generally do when I, when I start a project is uh, getting face-to-face time with a customer because um, I think there's the qualitative aspect and then the quantitative aspect. And with signals, I, I, I think you need to marry both of those, the, the qualitative with the quantitative to, under, to understand and to correlate. Um, because a discussion with a customer will often surface their major pain points. And the process that we generally go through, uh, we call it scoping, but we'll, we'll talk through what their pain points are and what, a, and eventually we get to a desired solution. But during that process, uh, we take that qualitative feedback in of what's you know, important to them, what they want to get to. And generally it might be something like, uh, where's my order function that, that's built into our, our bot? Um, or where's my order? Or... Um, can I get a refund for, for an item? And based on the feedback of the problems they're facing, we'll compare that to, uh, my, in most cases, it's financial. So like how much time will it take and how much resources will it end up being to create the solution they have? And if if it's a huge problem for them, but it's only, I don't know, a 50000 or or $100,000 impact that they would have, and it's going to cost just as much to create it, they're not going to see the ROI, and so even though it, it would resolve their pain point, um, the the numbers aren't correlating with the qualitative information. And so I think with um, by pulling multiple sources, the qualitative and the quantitative, you're able to triangulate what's uh, what's actually important from all of the indicators that are coming through. And the general rule of thumb that that I have when making these decisions, and that I got my team on is if we're, if we're not going to see a 3x ROI, then there's probably something else out there that we can focus our time and attention on, which means we need to, to dig further to see if there's other problems or other stakeholders that would be involved. Um, we need other data points to understand um, what, what else could be out there and not just focus on what's in front of us. So uh, it's a long answer to the question, but I think getting as many data sources as possible and then trying to triangulate them and, and correlate them um, to see not only what's feasible, but what's going to have the biggest impact. 
And then from there, I think it's uh, it's really hard to do it perfectly, but creating a prioritization and a project plan and coming to agreement on that is uh, the process that I found. But is there anything that you've done um, as far as understanding how to how to parse out the signal from the noise that you get when developing products? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm the first to admit, so I, I wouldn't be a good product manager because I, I get too emotionally caught up. I want to, I want to talk to everybody individually. I want to hear, I want to, you know, for breaking changes, like I'm, this show won't go out till January because I've already talked to so many people like, and, and so many, and we're releasing two a week that these are super valuable conversations that I'm having. Like the number one reason I do breaking changes is to get to talk to you and to learn me learning from you. But then there's also this, this bigger mechanism where I filter out and find the signal here. And how does, how does this fit into the overall life cycle? Like everything you're doing right now is you're talking about, I'm going to put into our master guidance around feedback loops and, and product management. And so this is actually my, one of my mechanic, you know, channels for my feedback loops. And this is part of my job in building uh, a, a API lifecycle and governance, a producer and consumer lifecycle that all works together product. This is what I'm building out of these conversations, just so you know, you're a guinea pig. So you're, you're like in the physical feedback loop right now, and I'm doing what you just asked me how I do it. So my challenge is, is, is I love just talking to you and I get so caught up in the moment that I forget about the big picture. And I just want to make everyone uh, like, they're so right. Like, and, and I get like, I'll be talking about you for the next like four or five days and, and everything we did. But then in the bigger picture, I'll lose that signal and get distracted by the noise or the next signal. So I actually would not make a good product management and I need people helping me with that. And luckily I have a team um, behind the scenes here who helps me stay on track because otherwise I, I don't think I would get a product out the door. I would have all the conversations. I would gather all the signals, but I wouldn't get it out the door. But with that said, uh, surround yourself with smart people um, who can uh, pay attention to things that uh, maybe you don't see. Um, diverse people, diverse voices um, that are going to ask questions that you just didn't even think about or see or point out data from it. So having those people around you, um, prioritizing channels and 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 what what matters the most because there's, we can we can find too many channels. We can we can uh, gather too much information and know when you need to start filtering that down. But then for me, I just follow my gut and what, what I feel intuitively is going to matter the most um, based upon the, those conversations I had and my understanding of the space and people. And I talk to so many people. Um, I trust my gut a lot. I know gut based isn't probably a sensible way to in scalable way, but I, I talk to a lot of people and I've been doing this a while. I, I trust my gut, but I don't know if that's right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, that quality, you're doing so much qualitative, uh, you have so many qualitative feedback loops through your conversation that it's probably why you can trust your gut is you've, um, you've done this so many times that if something feels off, there's, even if you can't pinpoint the reason there's, there's data behind it. Uh, but the, the gut comes much quicker than the data does. And yes. I think that's why it's important so, to have the team. Yeah, definitely. The team is critical for me. Like, cause I, that's why I'm at Postman. Cause I, 
um, I was doing this a long time on my own independently, and it only got me so far. You have to have a team. You have to have people working. But you have to, and I'm also learning, one of the things I'm learning from my team. So I hired someone named Deepa Goya from PayPal recently, and she's helping me think through all the product manager, developer experience stuff. And repeatedly in conversations, I find myself, she catches me in a uh, API producer mindset where she's coming at it from a developer journey, from a consumer perspective. And she's like, what? She asked me like, well, that just didn't make sense what you just said. Like, it, and I, and I explained again, yes, it does. And she's like, well, that's, that's, you're the producer. Like, no, this is about the consumer. And she's constantly advocating for the consumer and getting, and I just made me realize how locked into this mindset I am. And that's really what I think captured me about you and, and your perspective. So everything that you just said about um, prioritization and, and, and finding the signal, how do you reconcile that with the APIs you depend on? So you're, we won't name names, but you connecting to a CRM solution that um, is trying to prioritize what they should build and what they should make available. They have somewhat of a, maybe a, a, a barrier between you and them. Um, you know, you have one or two channels that you can, you know, submit your feedback. Like how do you make yourself heard or how much time do you make carve out for, being the signal for these providers, these producers, and giving them what they need to produce, not just what you need, but a better product that's going to make your job easier down the road. Yeah, I think the answer is I don't carve enough time out uh, to to give feedback and to help uh, the producers create better products. I think internally, it's really easy because, you know, having Zoom chat or Slack or, you know, the internal communication tools, it's really easy for me to connect with my, um, the integrations engineering team or, or the, the backend teams that are creating these APIs. You know, we, we have a really good relationship and we've developed that over time uh, with other vendors. Um, so oftentimes we'll come into an implementation and we'll, uh, we'll be one of two or three or four different vendors working on the project. And it's a lot harder uh, because we don't have that trust um, and we haven't developed a, a set routine as far as how we communicate and you know it's it's learning that um learning that relationship every time and so i think for me the the process that i i generally follow is if i have to choose who i'm going to be working with if i have to choose the producers that i'm i'm working with i'm going to look for the ones that are open the ones that have uh, invested in their developer experience and have created documentation and that uh, have done marketing or that have resources to talk to um, others in the community. Because I know that my when I do come with feedback to them, that they'll at least hear that and internalize it and it, it won't fall in deaf ears. Um, I was talking with um, a friend of mine who's, um, who's using the, the company that I worked at previously, and he was trying to integrate with customer on the, the chat side. And he was telling me that the process that they have, they don't bubble up their errors. Um, so it's it's a very tight system. And there's always a trade-off, right? Having an open system means that there's higher security vulnerabilities. And so you can't be completely open, but at the same time, if you're completely closed, it's, it's very difficult um, for others to work with you. And he was having this problem where the error messages weren't, weren't getting bubbled up and the events weren't bubbling up. And so he wasn't able to connect uh, the, the systems together to create this monitoring uh, with the application and with the chat. So the chat was 
essentially not showing up in that, that real-time user monitoring that they had. And he talked with the customer team and he, he brought this up. He's like, I'm not seeing the errors and I'm not getting the events that I need to handle these issues. And the customer team essentially said, yeah, we know it's, it's because uh, it's gonna be less secure and we'll let our development team know, but we can't make any promises. And just like hearing his frustration and having gone through that myself so many different times, um, I, I'm in a position where I can choose who I work with, um, at least more than I have earlier on in my career. And so that's what I generally look for now is people that are willing to be open and to take feedback and give feedback so that that, that feedback loop is really tight so that we can deliver product quickly and that we can deliver the best developer experience and customer experience. And then I think from there, once the, the relationship is established, um, it's, it's really just doing the work and kind of building on that, but um, setting everything up for success and, and choosing the, the right people to work with is uh, incredibly important throughout that process. Yeah, the heard a couple of really interesting things in there. The So I've long advocated that part of your feedback loop, the design of your API is part of your feedback loop, meaning the status codes you return is part of the the feedback loop with your consumer. And so thoughtful design is is really important because you're going to minimize people having to come and submit a ticket and and be the I guess the direct uh feedback loop mechanisms because you're you're this indirect this kind of soft feedback loop part of your design is good or bad. So your volume tickets will be lower or higher based upon this. So that's like the design of your API is, is very much part of your feedback loop. But the, the second dimension of what I heard you say is for me, APIs are a balance between access and control. And I, and, and I see this, I was, we just released the state of the API report today at Postman. And one of the biggest surprises for me is is, um, or not surprises, things I want to see more of is it's heavily skewed towards internal APIs and microservices, meaning the majority, we ask people, where are you doing private partner or public APIs? And it's overwhelmingly like 50, 60% private. And then a smaller, a slice of partners and a smaller slice of public, because people have a lot of anxiety about opening up they don't have a lot of confidence in 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 this balance it, what you just described in this company they just don't they're worried about opening up the pulling back the curtains too much and giving access to too many errors because they don't they don't have a lot of security confidence observability monitoring and so so really i think what you just described is how much your your design and the operation of your api is your feedback loop and is does set this tone for what you're going to be able to gather um, and, and filter out that signal from the noise. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it all starts in the design phase. Uh, so on the product design, how how are we developing error codes? It seems like such a trivial thing, but in the, the long run of launching an application and maintaining an application, the maintenance is much lower if the design is spec'd out properly and user input is taken and like you do the testing to to identify like what error codes um, should be should be coming up, so it's I mean it's it's a process, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to do well. I've I've seen some companies that have done it well, but more often than not, um, there's a lot of room for improvement with with most companies. And I, I think the reason why it's so difficult to do well 
is because the design phase takes so much time and effort. And uh, for me, what I've found is uh, there's the adage, measure twice, cut once. And I think within uh, software design and especially with API development, the it's more spend 80% of your time designing and getting input and testing up front. And then that 20% of time, like the build is actually easy and should be the shortest amount of time uh, as far as the, the entire life cycle of creating a product. And it's, it's really hard to do design well. And I think, you know, coming back to that, that idea of product management, um, I, I think good product management takes the time to do design well and to get customer feedback and include that in the product. Interesting. Yeah. And that gets at, so one of the things I've noticed in the space is we have a lot of time trouble having conversations because we're not grounded in some, some fundamental things. One example is the life cycle. When I ask people, what is the API life cycle in an organization? I would get 10 different answers. And once I did that at Postman and got 10 different answers, I'm like, all right, this is a problem because like, we're not all in agreement. We like verbally say we're in agreement on what the life cycle is, but when you get down to it, it's actually, no, we're not. And I noticed that the life cycle for a lot of, you go talk to developers is it's develop, deploy. And then somewhere in there, we added test so that you, well, you develop and you build your your test-driven development and then you deploy and those tests benefit. And then we started shifting security a little bit left. So you got a security review in there and you got some security, but it's still development, test, security, and deploy. And then once we started adding this define and design stage, we got pitchforks from developers going, no, I'm not a designer. I don't, I'm not a Yammer. I don't, I'm not going to design in YAML. I'm, you know, I'm a developer. And, and so code first kind of is winning out over design first. But what I heard you say is, this is a product management task. So I feel like the define and design stage, and then we're also seeing it. So that's the bookend at the beginning of the conversation. Once you deploy, there's observe, I have observability and distribute as the next stages. Those bookends, those two areas are also product manager because what metrics, um, how am I measuring all success, all of this? And then am I distributing it and documenting, getting it in front of the right people and then getting that feedback loop back to the beginning and so those bookend stages I I see a lot of groups expecting their developers to do those but the ones that I'm seeing be successful are the ones who are bringing in product managers and architects to to work with those product managers to do well and then product marketers I would say on the distribute side there needs to be product marketers involved in that to actually get it out so that's a long life cycle right for a product manager to work with customers and uh, work with the internal teams to define and then design a solution um, because uh, including engineering is really important in that step. And I think they'd like to be included. They just don't like to run it uh, has been my experience. Uh, they, they like writing code. They don't like defining business problems, but that, that life cycle, um, it, it takes a long time. And so I think there's, there's information gaps. And I think that's one of the things that I've realized in in my role recently, um, you know, stepping into management is most problems are communication problems. And like, even at the API level, that's what we've been talking about. Um, of error codes is a, a way to communicate that something is broken. And so building good communication paths and um, doing it in an agile way where it's iterative, where you can go through that process and then come back and 
go th go through it multiple times and the tighter that loop is the the quicker the product will get out and the higher quality it will be so i think oftentimes we think that it's a divide like quality if we want a higher quality product it's, it's going to take longer but I've, at least in my experience it's been the opposite the the products that ship quicker end up being higher quality because they have that loop um, tied down pretty quickly yeah the, the communication is key so so i'm gonna uh let the cat out of the bag here with the, the podcast called breaking changes there are no breaking changes folks there are just poorly communicated changes that cause systems to break so i would totally support i totally support you that it's all about communication and it's all about us human beings not doing that well or or doing it well yeah and has there been something that you found that's that makes that effective of like going through those steps and like building uh, a process uh, as far as going from design to implement it, like the development to the deployment to the observability to product marketing and getting that loop done? Yeah, the the foundational piece which I just talked about it, the life cycle is is the first grounding piece that's missing is people don't have a common definition of what the life cycle is. So how do we get from define to uh, distribute and then back again. So everyone's just wandering around, running around and doing what they can. And, and there's some overlap in it. But once you get people with a clear life cycle definition, saying the same things, being able to uh, to speak to it in a common way, things stabilize. The second one is role based. And so who are the owners or who are the stakeholders at each of those stages of the life cycle? Who should be in the room and who shouldn't be? Um, because this is what you said about developers is like developers want to be included in the define and design. They just don't want to own it and they don't want to do all that business research. So having very clear ownership and, and roles defined for each stage of the life cycle is is the next grounding piece because then you know who to communicate with you know hey hey joanne i just finished uh the requirements can you look at it hey ted i just finished the mocking i want you to play with it and see if it if it actually meets the contract that we discussed so and without those clear stages and roles that communication doesn't happen and that's where the friction comes in and, it's, and maybe this is just the developer mindset, but to me, it's almost like designing good applications is the same as designing good processes for building those applications. And just like we would define a, a Git request and say which parameter or which query parameters we can use with that Git request, I think defining a role is very similar to API documentation, where if we say who owns a role and like what responsibilities are associated with that role, um, and then communicating that with the team so that everybody knows uh, who else to talk to allows that that information to flow much more smoothly. So it's, I mean, it's from an architect mindset, it's like interesting to me how the same principles apply, whether we're dealing with code or whether we're, we're dealing with humans or, you know, something uh, completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was trying to write this up in, a, in an articulate way yesterday, but... Um is are everything we're doing for applications and integrations, the reasons why we're doing APIs, the same applies to the APIs because 
our AP, the infrastructure we use to deliver each stage of their APIs have APIs behind them. And so we can automate, we can communicate. There's a lot of things you can do um, strategically with your API lifecycle that you can accomplish with APIs that'll help you automate, stabilize, communicate, iterate, all these collaborate, all these things that are the nutrients that are the deficiencies that exist in the life cycle. And so we noticed this with our apps, we were building web apps, and then we're building multiple mobile apps, then we're building partner integrations here and there. And we started identifying along the way, we need a, a strategy for this, we need an API strategy for these resources, these capabilities and experiences. Now we just need a strategy for our APIs also and, and, and the life cycle and, and the governance in a similar way. And so that we can begin to stabilize how, how we do APIs and get more consistent and how we communicate. Because without that, the, the humans are the biggest problem because we're, that's how we work. We, you know, we, we've got to be able to collaborate and work together and understand and, and find that forward motion. And without that structure and, and framework, we're, we're never going to get there. So how have you seen the best systems set up? So like you, you described that, that flow of like product management, bookending the development, and then like on the observability piece, I imagine there's a DevOps team that, that helps with the deployments and setting up those process and product marketing um, to like help interface with customers. But I mean, there, it takes coordination. So I'm like, who's sitting on top of that? And like, what is the best organizational design to help with good API yeah. design? Like I, I imagine with everyone that you talk to that you have some um, some good insight. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm working on, on, I have a lot of good insight working on best how to put that out there and communicate that. And like I said, these, these, these conversations are part of that. And so I hear, I talk to a lot of groups who have a center of excellences when it comes to their API design, their governance that are creating design guidelines, security guidelines, things that are cross-cutting um, uh, across the life cycle. So defining the life cycle, but defining how we document, how we test, how we secure, and providing um, uh, as much guidance and enablement along those lines from a central standpoint. Now, with that said, I've also seen a lot of groups try to govern um, with a capital G governance from top down and hand these down to teams and just cause mayhem because it was mandated. It was everything. Every API has got to be exactly the same. Every team's got to operate exactly the same, use the same source control and CICD. And it's just not how it works in uh, across a, uh, an often distributed enterprise landscape that's either broken up by lines of business, tribal boundaries, acquisitions, geographic regions, regulatory compliant, you know. So the the ones that I see working are there is a centralized guidance and investment in resources. Um, they have champions that are part of federated teams who then help champion those centralized concepts, tasks. Um, but capital G governance on the ground floor is is lowercase g governance or more appropriately enablement so i'm i can apply these standards because they were someone else did the work to go find them and to make it easy for me to do it in my vs code and apply standard 
pagination or standard design or standard um, and and I've got linting rules. Someone thoughtfully put together a set of spectral linting rules that when I'm editing a YAML document or a JSON document for my API contract, it's catching most of the mistakes that I'm going to make as a designer and enabling me to deliver a better API. And oh, by the way, I can have those in the pipeline if I want, if my team team's mature enough and my API is mature enough. I can have them catch it in the CI/CD pipeline. Those 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 design gaps, because you know even me as an expert, like you know Monday Tuesday I'm great at remembering all those, but you know Thursday I woke up in a bad mood. I came to work, I pushed some code, and or a API contract, and it and I forgot thirty things because I was just in a really bad mood. I know I'm better, um, so I need that that pipeline to catch that for me, and I don't see it as enforcement. So like. Being able to centrally define a lot of these, distribute and enable teams to use as much, but then also leave room for autonomy and agency for teams to do what they need that may work and be a better solution. And then feedback loops, keep that that API strategy, guidance, governance, uh, a living kind of feedback loop, and then gather feedback from those champions and teams repeat, repeat, but you have to embrace a, a federated approach and find the balance between centralization and federation that's going to work. And then you bring in the ops team. How does how does your ops teams fit into that? How do your security teams fit into that? Um, those cross-cutting uh, functions. Um, and then you just find the dance that's going to work the best. I've been, I've been studying agile and how to actually uh, follow agile. And I think one of the principles is self-organizing teams end up producing better code. And I like that idea of like that. It's not a central governance uh, from like mandating things from the top down, but it's almost like uh, a, providing the teams with the tools they need, whether it's a CI CD platform or the linting uh, to check the code. So that way the teams can focus on what they do best, which is writing code or you know, if it's a product management team talking with customers, defining uh, what the actual business problems are, and then designing, you know, the the initial uh, solution and, and coordinating between people. But having, I think, that idea of enabling teams with providing them the resources and the structures and uh, really the tools that they need to succeed is really important. So that's uh, that's something that I'm going to to try to do, but I know that it, it takes a coordinated approach, right? It takes many different people coming together and agreeing on that. Yeah, that's that's the trick right there. And and so for for my last question, I mean, I could keep talking to you all day. This is great, but um, for podcast sake, I rem I got to keep reminding me we're recording a podcast. Um, one last question for you along those lines is how much of your day is technology? How much of it's business and how much of it's people-related things, would you say? Uh, I So I find myself having to add technology to my my schedule because if not, it would, would just go away. And I've felt that over the last few weeks, especially. It's like sometimes I'll come into a project and, and get deep in the technology. So, I mean, it, it obviously fluctuates, but I'd say on average, um, it's at least 50% people um, and then maybe 20, 30% uh, on the, the business side and 20% on the technology. So I think uh, being involved in the tech, I've, I've found that with my roles that I need to be involved in technology outside of work in order to stay current and stay relevant and to help me on everything else I'm doing. But the demands of the day 
um, being a manager, being thrown in meetings and working out HR issues uh, tend to take the majority of the time. But the fun stuff, what I really love doing is, is teaching the technology. So like I have past experience in boot camps and uh, I think one of my, my favorite responsibilities as a manager is, is mentoring and um, helping the team find the positions that work best for them and then like connecting everybody together uh, to build great products. So I, I wish it was reversed. I wish it was, you know, 80% on, on the people side uh, with the technology and, you know, 20% business and, and HR stuff. But yeah. that's a sad reality, I think, of, of being managers having to to go through the the day-to-day yeah well i i think you at least you have an honest kind of pragmatic view i think of your day i don't think as many people are being as honest with themselves when i ask that so i always love hearing what folks say um I keep talking all day, Ben. Um, we're at 50 minutes, which is like 10 minutes longer than shows usually go. So um, I, I'm going to, I, I, I want to have more conversations with you. One, I want to bring in Deepa from my team to talk to you. She's She gets the product management. I think you two would um, really jive. Maybe we could do an added uh, interview uh, or a separate segment where she and, and you talk. Um, the other I would love to dive into with you sometime is the ed tech, the, the education part of it, because you love teaching. Um, I have to admit, my wife is, um, she's a tech specialist is what her career has been. So she, like Spencer Fellow from uh, from Columbia uh, School of Education, uh, teaching technology in the classrooms, how does it work? That's what she's done for the last decade. So I've done APIs and she's done ed tech and uh, overlap. So um, but that'll be for another show. We'll have to uh, talk about that because I think learning um, and and is a is the number one most important thing we can do be doing in the API space. And I I think it's underinvested. We're not doing as much as we should. So, um, yeah, I appreciate the I'll, work that you're doing too to help with that because <laughs> I there there needs to be a lot more resources on the the API side. So I appreciate the podcast that. Uh, that you're putting together and all the amazing people that you bring on to help with that education. Well, do we do what we can. Thank you. Um, Well, I got to close it up there uh, to be continued though, because I love talking with you, Ben. This has been an amazing journey. Thank you for sharing and thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks. Looking forward to the next one. Definitely. Thanks again to Ben for stopping by. You can find more about Ben on LinkedIn or Zoom at zoom.us you can subscribe to the breaking changes podcast at postman.com slash events slash breaking dash changes i'm your host ken lane and until next time cheers cheers